He calls Mississippi home. He's president and CEO of the Mississippi Center for Public Policy. But in another life, in another land, across the pond, Douglas Carswell knows uh, more about this than uh, any of us uh, in the studio uh, do and a lot of other people. Douglas, good morning, sir. How are you? Morning, Paul. How are you? I'm doing good. Let me give you one cut to start out here. And this is uh, the the voice of, let me find this thing first of all, the voice of the new king, King Charles III. I'm deeply aware of this great inheritance and of the duties and heavy responsibilities of sovereignty, which have now passed to me. I shall strive to follow the inspiring example I have been set in upholding constitutional government and to seek the peace, harmony and prosperity of the peoples of these islands. I too now solemnly pledge myself throughout the remaining time God grants me to uphold the constitutional principles at the heart of our nation. One of the things, um, Douglas, and I think I'm a little surprised at is how many people in this state uh, or in this in the nation are really, really, and I'm, I'm, I'm surprised, but they are really, really interested in this and, and as a part of history, part of the royal family and everything else. Is, has that kind of taken you aback or to see the, the interest here, not only in, in the United States, but also in our state? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've been really touched. I think it shows a tremendous affection, not only for the Queen, who, after all, was on the throne since 1952, back when Harry Truman was in the White House, mm-hmm. but I think it also reflects this incredible um, affection for, for the UK, for Britain. I, I think at a time like this, you, you kind of realise who your friends are. And just, I've been really struck by the number of ordinary folk who've, who've said kind things to me. It's, it's, I think it reflects on the, the, the very closeness of our countries. Sure, we have two very, very different systems, but um, actually, I think at heart, um, we're, we're very similar as countries. We both want a system of government that works and a system of government where power is limited. And um, in the UK, we've got our, our way of trying to trying to do that in the UK in the US you've got your way of trying to do that but um, I've been really touched by how much affection there is in America for uh, the late Elizabeth II. I think I could relate to that in a way that if the Pope died then the Protestants would be the same way that's not their religion but they understand the importance to Catholics in that relationship I I think uh, there's some commonality. I, I think so I mean Look at it another way. In, in the UK right now, opinion polls show that between 80 and 85 percent of people support the monarchy. Mm-hmm. Now, you, you try and think of how many politicians after 70 years in office would have <laughs> 80 True. to 85 percent approval rating. Um, so, you know, it, it clearly works. And I think it also reflects the fact that Queen Elizabeth II did the job really, really well. She, she never intervened in politics. She never expressed her own political view. She was above all of that. She was, she was almost like the umpire, the referee in, in the match. And yeah. I think she did but, a great but, job and is hugely respected for that. Let me ask you some questions here because I, I, and, because I'm, we're learning. And I think one of the reasons is, Douglas, that we, of all the things that we learn in school, even back in our day, I don't remember learning the structure, the importance of of the royal family in in that political system. I mean, we're learning about the wars and 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 the mother country and all of that, but the, just the schematic or just the breakdown of of what the king and queen 
uh, and their powers. I, I don't even know if that's in any, any uh, curriculum uh, in our schools, but Prince William is now uh, heir apparent to the throne, uh, first in the British line of secession. He's now the Duke of Cornwall and, of, uh, and Cambridge. There's no automatic secession to the title of Prince of Wales, but in his first speech of, uh, as monarch, King Charles III appointed his son and daughter-in-law, Kate, to the Prince and Princess of Wales titles. So what is his wife Camellia's title? She becomes queen consort. Um, she um, She's not in her own right queen. She's sort of queen in, mm-hmm. in her right because she's been married to the, the king for 17 years. Um, and I, you know, I mean, I, I, I think one of the, one of the, things about the British system is you kind of you kind of know well in advance who's next in who's next in line. It, it obviously goes um, Charles and then William and then William's eldest child. Um, and so we, we kind of we kind of know. And one of the advantages of that is, you know, they, they get great training for the job. Um, <laughs> um, some might say yeah. that Charles has been training for the job for 50 years. Um, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm a huge, huge, huge admirer of the American system, and I, I, I still kind of think, you know, I'm, don't get me wrong, I'm a monarchist when I'm in Britain, but I still think the American Constitution mm-hmm. is the most sublime um, Constitution ever ever devised by humankind. Um, but I think both are trying to address the same problem: how do you make sure that power in a country is limited? Um, weirdly, the British system of having a monarch with no power means you don't get political dynasties the way you do in the U.S. You, you know, there's no Clinton dynasty in, 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 in Britain. There's no Bush dynasty or Obama dynasty in Britain. So paradoxically, and maybe counterintuitively, it actually, by having the system Britain does, it actually dissipates power pretty effectively, simply because if you're not a Windsor, you know, you're, you're, anyone who's not a Windsor is the same. Uh, but in that context, though, and and um, what what does she do, or now what does he do? How do they affect government legislation? My understanding is, when there's a political issue, they stay out of the political issue. They don't. If if it's a bill, as you just said about the queen, they don't go in there and say, "I want this bill. This bill should be passed." Yeah. So they don't get involved in that. So what do they do? Um. They personify the country. They, they symbol, symbolize and speak for the country. At moments of crisis, for example, um, September the 11th, um, mm-hmm. which was a, a crisis for the UK um, in a way that it, it was also for America, um, when um, in the middle of COVID, um, the, the king can speak for the country. Um, when there is something incredibly divisive happening, um, the, 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 the king can... Um, reassure people that actually, despite fierce political debates, mm-hmm. um, people are still in one country and they still should be civic and uh, mindful of, of, of everyone else. Um, one of the things that is really important, imagine a scenario in America where an election was disputed and, for example, candidates from one party refused to accept the result. Um, it, it's not quite such an unimaginable scenario now. Well, in the UK, that simply wouldn't happen because the prime minister is whoever the king um, recognizes as forming his government. So sometimes you get these tremendous political um, debates and, and, mm-hmm. and divide, divides and rows um, with, with, with a king or queen um, at the helm. 
um, you you can you can get through them. Um, and there have been occasions. The Queen on several occasions. I, I, I kind of I kind of like a referee and and also a Chamber of Commerce person is what it sounds like. Do they appoint the Prime Minister? They do. I mean, technically, the person who becomes Prime Minister is the person mm-hmm. who the King or Queen believes can command a majority ah, support okay. in the House of Commons. And and that is, it might seem slightly vague and ambiguous, but it has worked. And it's worked on a number of occasions when there's been political gridlock. When there's been political gridlock and crisis, having that process has allowed um, the different sides to work through the solution. There were times in, the, in, in Britain, I think in the 50s and the 60s, when there were some quite controversial decisions made by the Queen in terms of who she asked to form an administration. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it worked because, um, you know, um, fundamentally she would allow one person to try to form a majority. If they couldn't command a majority in the House of Commons, she would put it to an election. And it, it meant it, it, it forced different clients. Yeah, yeah. In the right. Again, Douglas Carswell is, um, I guess, President and CEO of Mississippi Center for Public Policy. I didn't know this, that Charles, uh, King Charles III and Camilla were not residents of Buckingham Palace. And uh, the word is that they're going to move there. I'm, not, you, I'm sure you know more about that either. But it's a nice little bungalow. They have plenty of room. There's 775 rooms, 52 royal suites and bedrooms, and 92 offices. So it doesn't give the number of bathrooms, uh, Douglas. But will, will they will they be moving in? It's pretty pretty massive. I'm not sure they would live at Buckingham Palace. I mean, I think mm-hmm. um, Buckingham Palace is very very grand. But and the Queen used to live in a small apartment there. But I I don't think she ever really regarded it as her home. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually. If you go to Buckingham Palace, it is very grand, but I'm not sure it's very homely. It, it looks so, so grand. I'm not sure you could ever really spend a relaxing downtime there. Um, mm. I suspect they'll probably have a small apartment there, but I suspect they'll probably do what the Queen did, which is to spend most of her time at one of her um, other um, houses outside of outside of London, Windsor Castle or, or Sandringham or somewhere like that. Yeah. I wonder, because the you always see stories, uh, Douglas, about the ethnic population of uh, the U.K., of, of Britain, changing. What do you think this means as far as the royal family in, in, in you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years? Well, you you do see demographic change in the U.K. like, like you do in the U.S. and in, in much of Europe. But I, I think one of the things about the... British system is that it's it's adaptable, it's, it's flexible. I mean, the Queen, after all, was Queen. Um, I think I'm right in saying that at one time the Queen probably had as many um, um, subjects of, of non-European heritage as she did of, of European heritage. I'm not quite sure of the, the figures, but she has, um, you know, she's been uh, head of the Commonwealth, um, which is, you know, probably the most multiracial, multicultural, global institution ever devised. Yeah, you might you might say that that's a legacy of, of Britain's past, and as we get further away from that, that might change. And I'm not sure that that would be a bad thing. I think you, you do need to change the times. But um, in, in Britain, um, I think having the system that we have, it gives stability, it gives predictability. Um, and I, you, I think that's, that's been advantageous. Yeah. You actually met the Queen, did you not? 
I did on a, on, a, on a few occasions. I was once invited to go and have tea with her at Buckingham Palace um, in celebration of her 90th birthday. It wasn't actually on her birthday, but it was uh, leading up to it. And amongst the other guests were the, the Prime Minister and the Archbishop of Canterbury and one or two other people. And I was the only one of those um, distinguished um, people um, to arrive. Um, I got there travelling on the bus, and so I walked up to the front gates of Buckingham Palace on foot. <laughs> and the, the, the police officer at the front gate didn't quite believe me when I knocked on the big iron gate and said I was due to come in and have tea with the Queen. It took a bit of persuading to be let in, but um, <laughs> no, it was wonderful. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure they probably heard that before. So <laughs> they had to run you through the ringer for that. Uh, we don't have a lot of time here, but I'm just wondering, in your mind, your estimation, looking back at 70 years and all the events that have happened, all the presidents and everything else, how how do you think history is going to look at her top moments as far as influence on the world stage? I think history will judge her well. She came to the throne in 1952 when Britain was bankrupt. Britain had just spent all its fortune um, trying to defeat Soviet, uh, uh, um, Nazi Germany. The country was on its knees. And she, at 70 years later, was queen of a country that had, was, you know, five or six times more prosperous. It had um, recovered its self-confidence. It had regained its sovereignty by leaving the European Union. And I think she, she will be remembered as someone who presided over a wonderful 70 years. I mean, the country now has a lot of challenges, um, and not least because it's shot itself in the foot economically. But I, I think that uh, her her 70 years will be regarded as a wonderful yeah. time to be alive and to be British. Does Liz uh, Truss have enough time? I think she's... Was she in there for two years? Does she have enough time to to make some changes that need to be making, made as a, as a, as a conservative prime minister? Goodness, I hope so. I mean, the British people have voted for Conservative governments for 12 years, and they mm -hmm. have yet to actually have one until Liz Truss. I mean, mm. I'm really excited. She's apparently coming to America um, next week, which is wonderful. Wow. But she's already got rid of the moratorium on fracking. She's already given companies permission to start drilling for oil and gas to get us out of this crisis. She's talking about tax cuts. Finally, we seem to have someone like Margaret Thatcher in charge of the country, and yes. boy, do we need that. Yeah, we need it. We need it here. Can she just supplant, uh, send Joe back over there? I, I got one other question here before the clock hits. Uh, you think that the King King Charles the uh, Third, during the some of the festivities that happened all the way through Saturday, I shouldn't say festivities, the funeral proceedings. You think he will have a private audience with Meghan uh, Markle? I'm sure. I mean, I think he made he went out of his way to mm -hmm. say kind things about. Harry and Meghan. I mean, you know, grief in any family, you know, and yeah. you're talking ultimately about a private family. Grief in any family can draw people together. Um, and, you know, it's sad in any family when you get um, di differences of opinion and fraction, uh, uh, fractious, fractiousness, um, particularly when you're in the international spotlight. Um, you know, I, I think I think there's probably um, going to be every effort made to be, to be kind and generous. Um, you know, it's a loss for all of them. The the funeral itself, I believe, is on Saturday. Am I right about that, or has that changed? I think it's on Monday, actually. I'm, I'm slightly out of touch, but I think it's on Monday. I think it's a week today. The 19th, yes. Wow. Wow. Okay. Okay. 
As always, I think this is the first interview we've done that hasn't had anything to do with the uh, with uh, Mississippi Center for Public Policy. But I I think I I thank you for taking uh, the time. Any final thoughts here that you want to share before uh, we go? Come on sometime and talk about what we've got lined up for the 2023 legislative session. I mean, yes. Mississippi, like every country around the world, needs low taxes, deregulation, and education reform. I'd love to come and talk about what we've got lined up for that next time. You got it. Uh, invitation will be accepted, sir, anytime you're ready. So let us know. Thank you, man. Thank Appreciate you so it. Much. Douglas Carr as well. Douglas is the president and CEO, also of the Mississippi Center for Public Policy, and doing a great job. 